Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell. That music you just heard was written and performed by a man named Matt Savage, along with his group, the Matt Savage Trio. Matt was diagnosed with a form of autism at the age of three. At age six, he taught himself to read piano music, and by the age of nine, without any formal musical training, he was composing and performing with his trio. Musician Dave Brubeck, who heard Matt play when he was eight years old, called Matt the Mozart of Jazz. Amazingly, one of Matt's music instructors said that Matt seems to know things that are deeper than his own existence. Matt's mother, Diane, explains it differently and says, Matt tells us the music is already in his head. He hears it and he plays it. He knows he has to practice technique, but the music itself, it's already there. Matt Savage is an example of an individual with savant syndrome. This condition was made famous by the Academy Award-winning film Rain Man, where Dustin Hoffman played the memorable role of an autistic savant called Raymond Bobbitt. In this movie, Raymond is able to, for example, memorize the phone book and calculate square roots at lightning speeds. Our guest today was actually the scientific consultant for Rain Man. Dr. Daryl Treffert, a psychiatrist based in Wisconsin, has studied the savant syndrome for 50 years. His website, www.savantsyndrome.com, is an amazing resource for researchers, parents, or anyone interested in this amazing condition. His most recent book, called Islands of Genius, The Bountiful Mind of the Autistic Acquired and Sudden Savant, takes the reader on a fascinating journey through the human mind. He's with us today to talk about what he's learned from savants over his career. Thanks so much for being on our show. It's a sure. It's a great honor to have you. Well, thank you. Would you start by defining savant syndrome? Savant syndrome is a, a rare but spectacular condition in which persons with developmental disabilities, such as autism or some other central nervous system disorder, have some remarkable islands of genius that stand in stark contrast to overall limitations. So savant syndrome is is a condition in which these special abilities are grafted onto some underlying disability. And there really are, are two kinds of savant syndrome I'm finding. Now, most of the years that I've spent with savant syndrome, I've been dealing with what I call congenital uh, savants. These are people who have had their special gifts from the time of birth. They often emerge during childhood or, or adolescence, but the, the condition was present uh, from from birth onward. More recently, I've been running into what I call acquired savants, and these are people who are neurotypical, normal individuals without any special abilities or gifts <clears throat> who, after some kind of a 
central nervous system incident. It may be a stroke, maybe a head injury, maybe getting struck by lightning. Uh, some remarkable new ability emerges, which was dormant all along, but the um, central nervous system incident uh, triggered this uh, phenomenon, and, and those are called acquired savants. Congenital savants are much more common. Uh, I have a registry now of about uh, 330 savants from around the world, and about uh, 30 of those, or about 10%, are acquired savants, and the remainder are congenital savants. So what's the relationship between autism and savant syndrome? Well, it's interesting that um, about one out of 10 autistic individuals has some savant abilities. Now, there is a range of savant abilities. Um, it ranges from what are called sprinter skills. These are kids who memorize license plates or birth dates or uh, calendar dates or other kinds of sports trivia or whatever. Then. There's a second category called the talented savant. And these are uh, individuals where the skill is more highly honed, generally a, a, a single ability such as music or art. And it's conspicuous over against not only their disability, but against uh, uh, normal individuals in general. And then third, there's something called the prodigious savant. And these are people whose skills are so spectacular that if they did not have a disability, we, we would call them a genius. And those are very rare. But nevertheless, about one out of ten autistic persons does have some savant abilities at one of those levels. Now, you can contrast that to people who have other kinds of uh, central nervous system uh, disabilities, such as mental retardation or organic brain syndrome. And in that population, it's about about one in fourteen hundred have savant abilities, so it's much more common in autism than it is in other central nervous system disabilities. Sometimes we think of people who are genius as being a little eccentric, and sometimes we wonder maybe that genius has a mild form of autism. This makes me wonder what is the difference between a savant, a prodigy, and a genius? Well, the difference is that by definition, a person with savant syndrome has some underlying disability. There's a trade-off of some sort for the special ability. It may be a cognitive uh, trade-off, but maybe uh, a memory uh, trade-off or other kinds of intellectual uh, trade-off, whereas the, the prodigy or genius uh, operates at this uh, uh, extraordinary, exceptional level without any uh, underlying disability and without any trade-off. But it turns out that the, the line between prodigy genius and savant syndrome is really a very narrow one. There's a tendency these days to say, well, Mozart must have been uh, Asperger's and Einstein and so forth. And I, I say, no, that there is such a thing as genius and there is such a thing as prodigy. And we have to be careful that we don't uh, label every person who has some exceptional skills as, as, as having Asperger's. Matt Savage has amazing musical skills, and Rain Man had an amazing memory. What kind of skills do savants have, and do these vary a great deal, or are they more stereotypical? The skills that savants have, interestingly, <clears throat> over the savant syndrome was first described in <clears throat> 1887, so 125 years ago, or whatever that amount is. And, uh, it's interesting that in all those reports, and, and including the reports to the present day, savant skills, 
uh, tend to narrow down to music, art, uh, calendar calculating, something I call lightning calculating or, or incredible math ability or unusual visual spatial abilities, uh, the ability to uh, know directions or um, how high some um, uh, some structure is without measuring it and so forth, visual spatial ability. So uh, they tend to occur in those in those five areas. Now, generally, the the extensive memory that the savant has um, is uh, within the, the area of the skill. So uh, the, the person who is musical uh, has the capacity to hear a piece one time, for example, and then play it back um, just as it was heard, as well as store it and play it back at any other time exactly the same. So savants generally have an amazing memory for specific things like being able to listen to a musical piece only once and then play it back perfectly. Why these skills? What is it about the savant's brain from a neurological perspective that gives them these very specific skills? What happens as, as far as I'm concerned in the, <clears throat> in the savant is that uh, there generally is damage to the left hemisphere okay. with, with compensation in the right hemisphere and the skills that you see in the in, in the savant tend to be right hemisphere skills. Now, the, the brain is not neatly divided into left and right, and I'm not suggesting that it's a clear division, but the fact is that the, the hemispheres do specialize in certain functions. The left hemisphere or dominant hemisphere uh, specializes in logical, sequential thinking and language, whereas the right or non-dominant hemisphere uh, tends to be more concrete, tends to be more instant, tends to be more literal, and tends to be more more, more visual. And so what happens in the savant is that there is damage generally to the left hemisphere with right brain compensation. And whatever that caused that left hemisphere damage also causes damage to the higher level memory circuitry, so-called semantic uh, uh, um, uh, memory. And the savant relies more on procedural or habit memory uh, sort of an unconscious uh, kind of memory. So what you see in the savant, generally speaking, are right brain skills coupled with this sort of habit memory. One interesting feature about savant syndrome and autism more generally is that these conditions are much more prevalent in males than in females. Is there an explanation for this? Uh, well, yeah, there is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, others who have looked at this. What happens is that um, <clears throat> all of us, um, when we're in utero uh, embryos, um, mm -hmm. the left hemisphere uh, completes its development later than the right hemisphere. This is true through the whole animal and, and, and human uh, species, uh, which means that the left hemisphere is exposed and vulnerable for a longer period of time than the right hemisphere to anything that might be damaging to it. Mm -hmm. Now, testosterone, it, can be damaging to neuronal tissue. And of course, in the male, during the time that they're developing their sexual, their secondary sexual characteristics, the circulating testosterone levels are as high in the, uh, in the uh, uh, embryo as they are in, the, in, a, in an adult male. And so you have a, a vulnerable, exposed left hemisphere 
exposed to circulating testosterone in the male compared to the female. Now, females have some testosterone too, just as males have some estrogen, but the testosterone level in males is obviously much, much higher. So um, uh, you have a, a damaging damage from testosterone to the to the more exposed left hemisphere. Now, it turns out that um, <clears throat> the uh, uh, male dominance in terms of um, numbers is true not only in autism and savant syndrome, but it's also true in speech and language disorders in general, in stuttering, and in other uh, ADHD, so that uh, there is, in, in these other conditions, <clears throat> um, such as, uh, as I said, such as autism or, or stuttering, uh, or speech and language disorders, uh, it's much more often seen in males, and it's for the same reason that the left hemisphere is the one that's uh, generally, uh, or the dominant hemisphere uh, that is involved with speech and language. So we've already talked about the congenital savants who have an underlying developmental disability and acquired savants who have a brain injury that results in them acquiring musical or artistic abilities. But in your book you also describe a sudden savant, which is a person who gains these abilities spontaneously without any brain injury. Would you speak a bit about these sudden savants? These are individuals, again, they're neurotypical individuals, generally very bright people, who <clears throat> have some kind of a, um, of a moment or an epiphany, which has nothing to do with, with, with a head injury, but, but suddenly uh, have this uh, knowledge which uh, wasn't uh, accessible to them before. For example, there's a gentleman in, in Israel uh, who uh, was uh, fooling around playing the guitar a little bit and fooling around with the piano, but, you know, like most people, uh, was it was a bit of a struggle to, to learn how to, to do that. But one day uh, he was at the the local mall with some friends of his, and there happened to be a piano there. And uh, and he sat down and started to play the piano, and he played the piano like he had never played the piano before. And he just it just suddenly, within a, a couple of seconds, occurred to him what all the keys meant and the difference between minor and major, and I mean all of the kinds of things that people spend years trying to learn. Mm -hmm suddenly came to him in, in, as an epiphany. And I've got uh, several other uh, cases. Another, uh, when I reported the case of this gentleman, then somebody else wrote to me, uh, the same thing had happened to them. And then more recently, a woman <clears throat> wrote to me who had that same uh, epiphany having to do with art, where she had not had any art ability before. So uh, that that's even more rare. But... Uh, but it does occur. So there's a congenital savant, the acquired savant, and then what I call the sudden savant. The interesting thing about the sudden savant is that there is no trade-off uh, for this uh, special skill. Often with the acquired savant who has a head injury, there may be some cognitive difficulties or memory or other kind of limitations uh, after the injury that were not there before. And there is a trade-off for this emergence of the skills. But I'm seeing more cases, very rare, but I'm seeing more cases now of people who have had some kind of a uh, incident uh, without any central nervous system trade-off um, in, in the acquired savant. And then there is this, the, the sudden savant, which 
um, especially the acquired savant and the sudden savant to me means that that sort of uh, dormant potential is is resides within us all to greater or lesser degree. I'm not suggesting that you know each of us is a little Mozart or Rembrandt, but I am saying that that there is this uh, island of ability, uh, uh, which um, which I think is dormant in all of us to greater or lesser degree. And the the challenge is, you know, how can you tap that without getting hit in the head or, or having some kind of a stroke or something else? And that's where we're trying to to head. If we all have, to a certain degree, an inner savant, how can we access it? There is Dr. Dr. Alan Snyder in Australia who <clears throat> um, uses what's called uh, RTMS, or uh, Rapid Transmagnetic Stimulation, uh, which is a technique which is used now in neurology for various conditions as well. And what he does, what Alan does, is Dr. Snyder, is to uh, temporarily immobilize the left uh, hemisphere, especially the left anterior temporal area, with this RTMS in volunteers, and then he then he sees whether some kind of unique or special abilities emerge. Now he started with with art, you know, before and after drawings, and before, during, and after, and, and those are very subjective and, and frankly not very convincing. Mm-hmm. But more recently, he's been doing some work with. Uh, with puzzle solving, uh, where you can actually measure, um, and people are able to solve this particular puzzle um, uh, many times quicker or um, for the first time uh, under RTMS. So he's his idea is that someday we'll all have a what he calls a thinking cap that we'll put on and, and, and have it, you know, put part of our brain to rest and other parts will emerge i i don't th- you know i don't think so and at a, at a at a practical level i don't think that's the way it's going to be i think rather that is probably less dramatic and, and it's what i call rummaging around in our right hemisphere in other words um, rather than waiting until we retire and have the time to do what we've always wanted to do in terms of whether it's art or music or archaeology or geology or whatever some retired people take up uh, that when they have the time, that we might begin that process earlier and kind of rummage around and find out what kind of skills. You know, we, we tend to be a left-brain society. That is, logical, sequential thinking and language served us very well. And so we tend then to, to use those same pathways in, in most problems that we approach. And uh, somewhat to the exclusion uh, of the right hemisphere skills, which we see a little bit more as frivolous and maybe not quite as you know as as important. And um, so I think that um, uh, we we need to to pay attention to that. Now uh, that has its its implications for education because there are a number of youngsters sitting in classrooms as we speak uh, who are really. Uh, right brain learners, um, nonverbal learners, and, and they, they just don't do well until somebody recognizes nonverbal learning disorder and begins to train the, the, the talent. Uh, it may not be in uh, literature, it may not be in uh, science, it may be in, in uh, a more uh, uh, in carpentry or uh, arch- architecture or other kinds of things. So when I talk about rummaging around on our right hemisphere, I'm talking also about looking at our education system. 
to make sure that we're not missing a lot of uh, right brain learners who, and I've seen a number of those, once, once that's recognized, they take off like a rocket, you know, whereas before they just, school was of no interest to them. So the, the, the implications of the acquired savant and sudden savant are, I think, um, are, are kind of are, are really widespread, but I think accessing it um, is not going to be quite as dramatic as, as we might like. One thing you've mentioned in your book is the concept of inherited or genetic memory. What do you mean by that? Many people probably remember um, in their studies along the way in psychology, um, hearing about uh, Carl Jung and his collective unconscious, where he sort of had the idea that there is a, a within all of us, a, a we are able to tap into what is a collective unconsciousness that's out there somewhere in the atmosphere or rare or whatever, and he called it a collective unconscious, which means a, a memory that we all have of our ancestry going back many years, but his concept was this sort of a, a, a cosmos sort of thing that you tap into. Well, I, I didn't I wasn't a believer in that when I was in training. It, it sounded pretty soft to me. But now that I'm working with savants, <clears throat> uh, especially some of those that have severe limitations, they clearly know things they never learned. In other words, Leslie Lemke uh, is a blind uh, a musician. His IQ is about 58. He's never had a music lesson in his life. And yet professional musicians who have heard him and know him say that fellow knows you know what I've been trying to learn my whole life he, he came with uh, with the music chip uh, installed mm -hmm. and and the same thing about art um, uh, Stephen Wiltshire who can um, fly above a city for uh, 20 minutes in a helicopter and then spend the next three days drawing what he saw window by window and, and uh, stone by stone and the same thing with the acquired savant is that these are people who, um, one of the, the, the recent ones is somebody who's become a math expert, whereas he had no math uh, training or ability or interest before that. Uh, and, um, uh, and others who have become uh, musicians uh, who had no classical musicians who had no interest in classical music before. Well, what that means to me is that we all, as I said, have this repository to a greater or lesser degree, and, and the question is, well, how did it get there? Uh, for me, genetic memory is the genetic transmission of knowledge, not just traits or behaviors, uh, but rather uh, chips, uh, the musical chip, the art chip, the math chip, and uh, this means that it had to come from, uh, from our ancestors. Now, sometimes those ancestors are immediate family, uh, mom and dad, but often they're not. Uh, often, as we look at some of these individuals, it's in the extended family. It may be an uncle, an aunt, or a cousin, or it may be two or three generations back, but somewhere we find that there is somebody with that, that kind of expertise. So genetic memory, to me, means that, that we don't start with a blank disk. Uh, you know, there's a, we, we tend to think that we're born with this huge hard drive of the brain, and we become what we put on it with our learning and with our experiences. And that's true that, that we do. But what I'm saying is that the brain comes loaded at birth. It's sort of like uh, I, I recently got a new computer and 
in uh, on that computer, there's all sorts of software installed. At least that's what the salesman told me that it's on there. And I guess if I look at the list, it probably is. But I have to know how to access it. Mm-hmm. If, if I don't do the right keystrokes, it just sits there, and you know. And then suddenly I learn the keystroke, and oh my God, here you know, here's this program that I had no idea was there. And so my idea is that this uh, genetic memory. Uh, so it's it's not a um, a concept of of some cosmos sort of thing that we tap into, and it's not a reincarnation. Although some people, when they hear about genetic memory, they'll say, "Well, Dr. Trevor, what you're describing is reincarnation," and I'm saying, "No." Uh, I'm talking about the genetic transmission of knowledge. Now, now in the animal kingdom, we don't think, you know, we think about that commonly. In birds and butterflies uh, who have uh, very exacting migratory patterns, for example, over routes that they've never traveled, obviously that had to get there genetically. So all I'm saying is that the same thing is true of us. Would you describe one of the savants you've known throughout your career and how their condition has changed as they, they've aged? I'm particularly getting at the question of whether a savant can be creative, or, in other words, can the way they use this pre-installed chip change over time? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, that When I first started dealing with savants, I was impressed with their ability to remember and, and hear, hear you know, Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto one time and then play it back flawlessly. Uh, that's, you know, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then you can play any other piece and then play it back. And I, w- I was uh, very, very impressed with, first of all, their skill, but also their, their memory. But in the first book that I wrote, which was called Extraordinary People, Understanding Savant Syndrome, I said that, um, that that's spectacular, but as a group, savants are not very creative. Well, I was wrong because I just hadn't <laughs> dealt with them long enough. What 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 I'm seeing now with the savants, whether it's a musical savant or an artistic savant, uh, is that they start with this uh, tremendous recollection ability. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, but it's not too long that after that they become uh, somewhat bored with just replicating things, and they begin to improvise. And then finally, uh, they begin to create. So that what you'll see, I've seen the sequence now, again, Leslie Lemke, who's uh, here in Wisconsin then, and um, um, literally did play Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto when he heard it as a theme to a, to a Sunday night movie, um, and is able to play any piece back, having heard it one time. But um, I have a clip of him at a concert where a little girl came up and, and played Mississippi Hot Dog. And, and uh, Leslie dutifully played it back just as she did, mistake and all. But toward the end, he, he, you could see he's getting a little restless and begins to move around on the bench a little bit. And then pretty soon he launches into this this concerto, variations on a theme of Mississippi Hot Dog, which goes on for two or three or four minutes, which is a beautiful piece. He's changing pitch. He's changing um, uh, the, the, the piece, but keeps coming back to the theme, so he's improvising. And now uh, uh, he's a little bored with that even, and so he's actually creating some of his own pieces, not only the music, but the lyrics. One of the interesting things about Leslie is he's not only a brilliant musician, uh, a pianist, but he also uh, sings and 
has a beautiful voice, and so he, he makes up these songs, um, both the, the lyrics as well as the um, uh, the music itself. And so this this sequence of uh, replication to improvisation to creation is something which I've had the privilege now of, of observing uh, long enough. What was happening before was I was just kind of taking a snapshot of, of these people at a point in time, which is often what I think we see now in the, in the media, mm-hmm. and just didn't deal with them long enough. But indeed, they, they can be very creative. Does working at these skills have other impacts on their lives? Well, when the person trains the talent and uses their talent uniformly, they develop uh, better social skills, uh, better language acquisition, and better daily living skills. And in many of the savants, it's actually uh, provided uh, an independent uh, living source for them. Uh, hmm. And uh, so it's not just a, you know, frivolous, gee whiz, look at that, isn't that interesting? Um, uh, here's this handicapped person doing these things. Now, it's, 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 it's much more than that. First of all, the artwork, I will put that side by side with any non-handicapped person uh, in, in museums that stand side by side as it should. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as outsider art, and I, I, I detest that term because mm-hmm. these are not outsiders. These are, you know, their work is is, is valid in, in its own right. But um, so uh, the really exciting thing, as far as I'm concerned, is not just the, the pieces that they produce, but rather I've watched them uh, become more social Mm-hmm. better language acquisition and more independent. And, that, and that's the payoff for me in this whole thing, is to see that sort of um, uh, growth toward independence. What I would imagine would be incredibly important for the development of their skills is um, their family members and caretakers. Um, and I was wondering what, what lessons have you learned from these caretakers? Yeah, uh, good. That's, uh, I'm glad that you brought that up because the savant, as far as I'm concerned, sort of stands on a, on a three-legged stool. One, one is they do have some unique uh, neural circuitry. Um, secondly, uh, they are able to uh, narrow their focus and spend a lot of time and energy uh, refining that skill. But a third part of that stool is, uh, is the family, because um, behind every one of these savants, there is a family member or caretaker or sometimes a cousin or somebody who's uh, taken an interest in this individual. And, and what I've learned, I guess, is that, um, uh, or sort of reinforced, the, the, the power of belief in somebody, the, the power of reinforcement. And uh, a family who's, who doesn't say, hey, you know, or who says, look what's there, instead of saying, look what's missing. I mean, they're excited about it. Uh, May Lemke says, that's my boy, you know, and and, uh, and it's reinforcing, um, and it's unconditional. And, and uh, the, the family members are not just enamored of what the savant can do. They're enamored of who the savant is, he or her, uh, him or her. And so the... the, the uh, the incredible power of, of love and the, the patience the behind the scenes. And, and I've f- felt in my psychiatric practice all along that love is a pretty good therapist, too. And, and I think we sometimes uh, tend to not recognize the, the how, how powerful a, 
um, a um, element of of getting better or becoming independent is uh, just from the family. Well, that's it for the Grok Science Show. If you want to hear more from us, you can find our website by Googling the Grok Science Show. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. You can learn more about the Savant Syndrome by going to www.savantsyndrome.com, and you can find Dr. Trefford's contact information there. He wanted me to tell you that if you have any questions, he would be happy to hear from you. From the Grok Science Show and Charles Lee, Frank Ling, Elise Kovic, and Forrest Golden, I'm Joanna Rowell.